got a lot to get to here on a Military Monday edition of the EP Podcast. I'm Austin Horton. Thanks for tuning in and joining me each and every day. Follow us on uh, Facebook, the EP Podcast. I'm on Twitter, at Austin Horton. You can send me an email, austin.horton at 1280thezone.com. Uh, if you know someone that needs to be uh, nominated to be an interview uh, on the uh, Military Monday edition, let me know, austin.horton at 1280thezone.com. would love to feature your friends, family, loved ones, neighbors who have a story to tell about their or their loved one's sacrifice or service in the military. Uh, also, we've got uh, uh, the podcast everywhere you can find it, Google, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, uh, 1280thezone.com, the Zone Sports Network app in the on-demand audio section, just uh, Spotify, just search it, there we are. And uh, enjoy it. I appreciate it. All right. The Dolphins are in the news. The uh, Last Dance documentary is making all kinds of news today. Episodes five and six dropped last night. I got all kinds of thoughts on that. And a new study about when and if and how uh, uh, fans could return to sports. Talk about that and so much more today. But most importantly, coming up for a Military Monday it's my pleasure to have retired Lieutenant Colonel Larry Steed, a Vietnam combat, combat veteran, a pilot, spent 20 years in the service, flew many, many missions uh, in uh, the Vietnam War. He'll be my, uh, and he's a local resident right up there in Kaysville, he'll be my guest coming up here in just a, in just a few minutes here for Military Monday. And boy, he's got a story to tell, and he's got a voice that we all need to listen to and follow And I'm excited and honored to have him as my guest today. Let's dive into the sports side of the podcast, though. Let's start with this survey out there. ESPN conducted a survey of over 1,000 sports fans aged 18 or older. The returns were this. 65% of those 1,004 fans were in favor of sports returning, even if fans can't be in the stands and they, they continued that that approval number grew from 65% to 76% when participants were asked if they support the return of sports without fans in the stands if players were kept in hotels and their contact with others was closely monitored. So the vast majority of fans uh, surveyed by ESPN, there are 1,004, 1,004 fans, 18 or older, the vast majority say yes, we, uh, they, they support the return of sports uh, without fans in the stands, uh, and that uh, they, they, as long as the players are monitored and kept in quote unquote bubble cities or isolation hotels, then the majority grows even further to 76%. Along those lines, Miami Dolphins uh, were on Good Morning America this morning, uh, and uh, the, uh, the CEO and President Tom Garfinkel revealed mock ups of new entrances into the stadium, Hard Rock Stadium. That would help people adhere to social distancing guidelines. What he said is, quote, we would have times to come in for security at different gates so people would be separated out in terms of when they enter the stadium. We would exit the stadium much like a church environment where each row exits so people aren't filing all out at the same time in a herd, close quote. Uh, Tom's never been to my church because n- there's no order <laughs> when you exit a church, but hey, whatever, that's, and maybe his churches, they do that, and uh, that's, how, that's how it should be on airplanes for sure. The front exits first, that's how it sh- should be, that's, and so that, that and they had, uh, the mock-up also include colored spots on the ground leading up to entrance gates to designate the distance needed between fans as they file into the stadium, and it says here, it's a plan not unlike what some restaurants have done for customers picking up takeout orders during the pandemic. 
Uh, this stadium holds 65,000 fans for a football game. The Dolphins said they might bring that down to 15,000 fans to start. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert in crowd control, in uh, herd immunity, in pandemic uh, uh, numbers and how many people is and isn't safe to be around each other. I don't know. I don't know if this would work, but it's an idea. It's innovative. It's creative. And I would love to hear what a medical expert's opinion would be on whether or not this would work. So there you go. A couple uh, steps forward. And you couple all that with the news over the weekend coming out of the NBA that they have delayed the NBA draft lottery and the NBA draft. I think that's terrific news. Some people took that as a negative. I think it's a positive because what they're saying is they're going to get this season finished here. And they don't want to have the draft and the draft lottery because that signifies the end of the season. No, they're going to wait and push that stuff off. And I think that's the right thing to do. And I think it's great news for the NBA's uh, hopes of coming back soon and finishing the season. All right, there you go. That's stop one on on a Monday edition of the EP podcast. Let's dive into a little bit of what happened on the last dance yesterday. All right, I told you at the start of this series that I was not going to be able to watch The Last Dance because of it would be too painful. Uh, I'm grateful that I swallowed my pride and have uh, watched this thing because it's it's great te- it's great television. Now there was a criticism from Ken Burns, the documentarian uh, online, that he said that uh, he's got a problem with The Last Dance and how it was made because it's not true journalism. Uh, because of the way that Michael Jordan has last say on what was edited and what was included in this. And he's absolutely dead right. This is not journalism. It's entertainment, Ken. That's what this documentary is. Not every documentary is uh, 19 hours of the Civil War facts only. Okay, And and I respect Ken Burns and what he does, and I think it's important work, and uh, it's boring the way he does his documentaries, but it's thorough. And it's all-encompassing, and it is straight, cold, hard facts. That's not this type of documentary. This one is an entertainment factor. ESPN, which is playing this and houses this, it stands for Entertainment and Sports Network. Come on. It's the first letter of it. Entertainment is what this is. So anyway, uh, but episode five was chock full of nuggets and information. Let's start with some of these sound clips that we got from episode five of The Last Dance. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about my favorite part of episode five was Kobe Bryant. And he's right there in the first part, uh, and it starts with In Loving Memoriam uh, of uh, In Loving Memory of Kobe Bryant. And it's tough to see and hear Kobe Bryant uh, still. It's This was the first time I've seen really anything since Kobe's uh, tragic passing and his daughter Gigi and the others aboard that helicopter. This is the first time I've seen him in this form, in this capacity. I'm so grateful they got this interview in. Uh, and I, I'm grateful for his words because... no. And I'm sure you, you've all seen the, uh, the video that went around social media for years now, but as it resurfaced after Kobe's passing of the super edit of Jordan playing basketball... And, and, and uh, Kobe playing basketball and how they looked the exact same. They were, they were the exact same basketball player in the way they breathed even. They were the exact same basketball player. And it's, 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 it's really cool. It's almost eerie watching that supercut, just how mirrored 
they were, just how uh, identical their games were. And that's because Kobe worshipped Michael Jordan growing up and wanted to be everything. Whatever Michael Jordan did, Kobe did it. And to hear this interview with Kobe in that uh, episode last night was really good to, to know that uh, he understood from where his powers came, essentially. Not saying that he's not uh, uh, to get, receive credit for his career or how good he did, but he at least is good enough to point out, I got this all from someone else. Here's what uh, Kobe Bryant said. At that point, Michael provided a lot of guidance for me. Like, I had a question about shooting his turnaround shot, so I asked him about it. And, you know, he gave me a great detailed answer. But on top of that, he said, if you ever need anything, give me a call. It's like my big brother. You know, I truly hate having discussions about who would win one-on-one. And you're a fan saying, hey, Kobe, you beat Michael one-on-one. I feel like, yo, what you get from me is from him. I won't get five championships here without him because he guided me so much and gave me so much great advice. Good stuff there from Kobe Bryant. Absolutely incredible. And uh, good to see him in that episode last night. Uh, the next, My next favorite part of episode five was the whole Nike shoes thing and how that came to be. I had no idea that Michael Jordan had no interest in being there. And Nike, look, this happened before I was around or if I was around, I was barely around. I was, you know, trying to uh, figure out how to keep my food down in my belly uh, without spitting it up in between sleeping, pooping, and, and peeing as a brand new bag. I don't know. But uh, too much information? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> he uh, the, he did not want to go to Nike. It was a track company, track shoe company mostly at that point. Uh, and he wanted to be Adidas. He loved Adidas shoes. He, he, that's, he, he wanted, they even showed an interview, a clip in this uh, documentary of him uh, fawning over how great the Adidas basketball shoe was. Well, he went to Converse. His agent, David Falk, went to Converse, and Converse said, we can't put you above Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Dr. J, Bernard King, who are already endorsing Converse. So Jordan and his team said, fine, then we're not going with you. Then they went to uh, Adidas, and Adidas said they didn't have the ability to create a shoe just for Michael Jordan at that time. And that was important to David Falk and Jordan was that he would have his own line. And so they thought, okay, we'll circle back to Adidas, but let's try Nike, who was uh, fourth at this point behind Converse, uh, Adidas, and Reebok. Here's Nike down there with LA Gear. Uh, who, which was essentially nothing at the time until Carmelone came along. But here we go, fourth, third or third or fourth Nike, and Jordan says, I don't want to go. Well, David Falk explained how he got Michael Jordan to show up to uh, the Nike meeting. And then at the end of the clip, you'll hear Vice President of Jordan brand, Howard White, talking about what kind of money they were going to offer Michael Jordan, who had never done a thing in the NBA, and how at that time it blew Howard White's mind. I couldn't even get him to get on the damn plane and go visit the campus. So I called his parents. And my mother said, you're going to go listen. You may not like it, but you're going to go listen. Mom, I don't want to hear her. I know what I want to do. I am not going to Nike's mom. I said, Michael, you have to give him an opportunity. And she made me go on that plane and go listen. Go into that meeting, not wanting to be there. Nike made this big pitch. Um, the father said, you gotta be a fool for not taking this deal. This is the best deal. 
back then, the best guys might have gotten like $100,000 or so. And he got probably $250,000. It was like, well, you would pay him what? A young rookie that's done nothing? You must be out of your mind. When all else fails, call mom. Call mom and dad, get them involved, and get the right decision made. Can you imagine how different the world would be had Nike and Michael Jordan never had a deal, never got a, 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 a contract going? In fact, this next part, who came up with the brand, Air Jordan? None other than his agent, David Falk. When I negotiated the Nike deal, I said to him, you're a small company, and if you want Michael Jordan, he's got to have his own shoe line. Nike just come out with this new technology for their running shoes called Air Soles. And obviously, Michael played in the air. So I got it. We're going to call it Air Jordan. And Jordan. That's got a pretty good ring to it. All right, continuing on from the creation of the brand Air Jordan, David Falk explains just how much more money they brought in in the first rendition of the of the Jordan 1s than they had anticipated. Nike's expectation when we signed the deal was that at the end of year four, they hoped to sell $3 million worth of Air Jordans. In year one, we sold $126 million. This guy saved Nike. No, actually, Dolores Jordan saved Nike is what happened. Michael Jordan's mother invented Nike. Move over, Phil Knight. Move over, Howard White. This is Dolores Jordan's company for sure. And then this little thing, I uh, just thought this was so funny. Uh, y- you never want, I don't know if you, at the time this was probably a real big compliment, but I don't know if anyone would ever want to be uh, compared to this particular item when talking about their popularity. As a commodity, Michael Jordan is as hot as a Cabbage Patch doll right now. <laughs> cabbage Patch dolls. I I remember faintly the... The run on Cabbage Patch dolls and how everybody had to have one and they weren't they weren't around. No one could they couldn't keep enough in stock. It was like the Furby of the nineties. I had a Cabbage Patch doll. My brother had a Cabbage Patch doll. We all had Cabbage Patch dolls. Uh, Hans Olsen gets mocked incessantly for having a Cabbage Patch doll named Christopher. Mine came with a name. His name was Raphael. I was so excited about that because Raphael was my favorite Ninja Turtle at the time too. Uh, anyway, Cabbage Patch doll. Uh, and then finally, this Nas, the rapper Nas. I think put it perfectly. He he sums up perfectly how important it was for a youngster to have some Air Jordans in his closet on his feet at the time. For a kid, it was almost like owning um, a lightsaber from Star Wars. You needed that shoe to be like him. It was more than a status symbol. You knew this guy was the guy. There you go. I was fascinated and enthralled by the shoe segment in the history of the Jordan brand there uh, with Nike during episode five. Uh, J.A., they they also, the other cool thing that came out of this was they showed actual footage of that famous dream team practice uh, where they uh, went after each other. And Michael Jordan, uh, Magic Johnson, and, uh, oh, I'm spacing on who the other one was, Magic Johnson teamed up uh, against uh, Michael Jordan and said, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna do this to us." And Michael Jordan just creamed him. And we saw actual footage with uh, dialogue that is saved in the archives. And it's so, it was so cool to see that uh, because that was the greatest basketball ever formed, and it, it'll never be matched. I, I don't care whatever happens in the future. The Dream Team was the greatest basketball ever formed. Now, J.A. Donde uh, of ESPN pointed out that it was weird to see Magic Johnson throughout this whole episode 
not as a player in some of these segments where he, uh, you know, the his uh, AIDS diagnosis had forced him to retire and leave the NBA. And here he was in this episode five covering the NBA finals between the Bulls and I believe the Blazers at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, J.A. Adonde pointed out that here's Magic Johnson as a player, then suddenly a broadcaster and no explanation as to why he's suddenly uh, a young, retired basketball player as a broadcaster. And I get what J.A. is saying there, but at the same time, we all know. We all know what happened. We don't need to drag Magic Johnson back through that. We, we, it, and this documentary is not about Magic Johnson and Magic Johnson's journey. This is about Michael Jordan. And that story there. So J.A. Adonde, I get what he's, I get where he's coming from, and I understand, and I know that Magic Johnson uh, uh, changed the path of medicine in the NBA uh, and changed the uh, a lot of people's opinions uh, of those that have AIDS, and, and really helped uh, people realize that you don't have to ostracize uh, people suffering with AIDS or HIV. Yeah, you can you can still be part of society, uh, and that's important. But this documentary is not about that. Finally, uh, some notes and, and clips that came out of episode five of The Last Dance, all about politics. Everyone knows, maybe not everyone, but most everyone probably knows about the famous line Michael Jordan uttered about Republicans buy sneakers too when he was asked about why he doesn't get involved in politics and social change and and uh, use his platform in that way and he said republicans buy sneakers too now that i did not know the history around that time in north carolina how uh the the uh, gant was running against the incumbent who i don't even want to give his name that's how awful of a person I think that incumbent was and a racist uh, and at the time Gant and Dolores Jordan asked Michael Jordan if he would endorse Gant and how much that would help him win well here's some thoughts on that whole history right there first of all notorious PhD Dr. Todd Boyd had a comment about uh, Michael Jordan not endorsing uh, Gant Michael refuses to do a commercial to support Harvey Gantt, and the statement that emerges, Republicans buy Nikes too, sounds as though Michael is saying, my personal wealth is more important than my politics as it pertains to the issue of race. The documentary immediately cuts to Michael Jordan standing by his statement and why he said it about uh, Republicans buy sneakers too. I don't think that statement needs to be corrected because I said it in just, you know, on a bus with, you know, with Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen and it was, you know, thrown off the cuff. My mother asked to do a PSA for Harvey Gantt and I said, look, mom, I'm not speaking out of pocket about someone I don't know, but I will send a contribution to support it, which is what I did. Okay, take it for, take him at his word. He said it in jest. And he did send an, a, a check-in or whatever, a contribution to Gantt's uh, campaign. That's that's fine. If he doesn't want to be into politics, that's his right. We'll leave it at that for now. I've got my thoughts on that in a minute. But then Washington Post uh, columnist Nathan McCall, I thought, had a really good point. Everybody in the world respects Muhammad Ali. You know why? Because he stood for something. He stood for something even if it meant sacrificing a payday. We respect that. Ultimately, Michael Jordan may be forgotten. Muhammad Ali won't be forgotten. 
Now, McCall's wrong here about one thing. Neither of those men will ever be forgotten. Uh, that And that was an interview McCall did in the 80s, or the, the late 80s, early 90s when this took place. And he, he was wrong. Michael Jordan will never be forgotten. Uh, neither will Muhammad Ali, obviously. But one guy decided to make a business decision. The other guy decided to risk everything he that was his and his family's to stand up for what he believed was right against what he believed was wrong. And uh, I'm not, you know, whatever whatever side you fall on that with Muhammad Ali, he at least had the guts to do it and and, and risk everything. Michael Jordan did not. Uh, and that's, I think, McCall's point there. Michael Jordan responds to those that would have those criticism and set criticisms and, and says, look, that was never my interest. I do commend Muhammad Ali for standing up for what he believed in, but I never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. I wasn't a politician when I was playing my sport. You know, I was focused on my craft. Was that selfish? Probably. But that was my, that was my energy. That's where my energy was. Uh, I, I will correct Michael Jordan here. Just I'll, I'll, I'll twist it a little bit back to where I think the truth lies. He wasn't a basketball player. It was a business decision. He was a basketball player. He was focusing on being good at basketball. The greatest to ever do it at that time is what he wanted to be, and some would believe and say he has become, he became that. But this was a business move to say Republicans buy sneakers too. Said in jest or not, that's a business decision, and that is, as Nathan McCall said, sacrificing, not willing to, be, not willing to sacrifice a paycheck to stand up for what you believe could help uh, people in your cause and things that you believe in. I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't sit well with me, but to Michael Jordan's credit, he realizes that it doesn't sit well with people, and I think he has a really good point here uh, uh, as to what people should do about that. It's never going to be enough for everybody. I know that. I realize that, you know, because everybody has a preconceived idea in terms of what they think I should do and what I shouldn't do. The way that I go about my life is I set examples. If it inspires you, great. You know, I will continue to do that. If it doesn't, then maybe I'm not the person that you should be following. Told you at the first of this uh, last doc- last dance documentary, Michael Jordan is not a role model. He's not. He's a brilliant businessman. He's an incredible basketball player. He is not a role model. And he himself just said right there, if you've got a problem with some of the things he does, perhaps he's not the guy you should follow. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I'm sorry if that sounds harsh. Sorry if there's MJ fans that disagree with me. But the man was not a good father, was not a good husband. Uh, and that that matters more to me than how many points you score in an NBA game in an NBA career or how many sneakers you sell. That stuff's important too, but being a good father and husband is vastly more important to me. Michael Jordan was not that. And I'm not saying he's a terrible father. He still took care of his kids, obviously provided for them and his family. But I'm just saying, he's right. If you disagree with and have a problem with some of the things he does, maybe you shouldn't be the guy you follow. And he's absolutely right with that. All right, coming up next on a Military Monday, as mentioned at the top of the show, I've got Larry Steed, retired Lieutenant Colonel Larry Steed, a Vietnam combat vet, also flew missions during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, spent 20 years uh, in, the, uh, in the military, in the Air Force specifically, and uh, he flew uh, 126 missions over North Vietnam and Laos from June 1967 to July of 1968. 
Uh, he, uh, in fact, uh, he saw he saw a lot of battles. He saw a lot of destruction, a lot of success. He had 50 pilots that took off with him. 25 were shot down. 15 of those 25 paid the ultimate sacrifice for freedom. And uh, I, I'm really interested to have you hear Larry Steed's thoughts on those times, where he came from, why he joined the military, and what we can continue to do every day as citizens of this great country to uh, support the men and women uh, and their families that are in uniform uh, here uh, and abroad. Coming up next, Lieutenant Colonel Larry Steed of the United States Air Force. Stay tuned. Joining me now, Larry Steed, uh, a local man who served a uh, time in Vietnam and a longtime service member in our in our military. Larry, thank you for your, for a few moments. How are you and your wife doing? Everything healthy and happy these days? Everything's great. Thanks for asking. Good, good. So let, let's get some backstory on you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? And what's the story there? Well, my parents were all from Utah, but they moved to California, and that's where I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I was born in 1935, so I'm a real geezer. But <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I was raised in California and got into the drag racing business when I was a teenager and had the world's record for a while in my class. And, Did you really? Wow. Yeah. What was the record? <laughs> well, I've got to remember, this was a long time ago with small flathead V8s. 126 in the quarter mile was my record. Wow. How long did you hold on to that? Well, you know, I don't know, because I left to go into the Air Force uh-huh. and uh, just totally lost track with that. Now, did, I'm guessing a year or two. Where'd you learn the cars from? Was your was your father, uh, someone in your family, a no, car person? No. no, just me. When I was in high school, I went to work for a company in Los Angeles that built race cars and racing engines, and, and they taught me stuff, and uh, I was totally infatuated with speed and performance and uh just got into it that way. So I, I also host a, a show on Saturdays here with Mark Miller Subaru, and I'm, I feel like a fraud sometimes because I'm not from cars. I don't know cars. I, I enjoy, enjoy cars. I appreciate cars. I might be able to change the oil on a 96 Honda Civic, maybe. If you give me a couple days, I might get the job done. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I could learn a few things from you. What's the first thing that drew you into cars? What got you into, okay, I want to learn about cars? Well, in those days, I had a driver's license when I was 14. Wow. It was called a student operator's permit, and I bought my first car when I was 14. And, of course, you know, all the hormones for a teenager, I was out drag racing on the streets with people, and uh, I just got into it that way. Uh, and uh, being an L.A. kid, I assume, was it just drag racing, or did you surf and, and do the beach thing, too? Not the beach thing, but I did the dry lake things a little bit. We had El Mirage. They still race there, straightaway racing, sort of like Bonneville. Mm. And uh, so I did some of that, too. All right. And when did what, how old were you when you went into the Air Force, and what made you decide I to do I was 19. That? I went into the aviation cadet program, pretty tough program to get into. Uh, but I went into that, and uh, the washout rate in pilot training was 50%. So it was pretty sporty, but I uh, graduated from that in 1955 and went right into the F-86Ds, which was the fastest airplane in the world at the time. 
and loved every second of it. And then I flew several other fighters, and then uh, here comes Vietnam. I had a chance to just sit back and wait and see where they were going to send me, and I wasn't about to let some personnel puke somewhere to tell me what I was going to fly. So I volunteered for the F-4 Phantom and was accepted for that program, went through that at George Air Force Base at Victorville, California. And then I went to Ubon, Thailand, to the 8th Attack Fighter Wing. They had uh, F-4s in South Vietnam, but they were mostly air-to-ground against uh, guerrillas and stuff like that. We were flying our missions in North Vietnam against uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, anti-aircraft, MiG fighters. It was uh, much more demanding. So I flew 126 missions and came home. What was the uh, most rewarding part of your military service, Larry? Serving my country for 20 years. I uh, took an oath when I went in that I would defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and it never occurred to me that I would have to think about domestic enemies, but I sure am now. Yeah, things have, things have sure uh, ramped up there, certainly, uh, since uh, Vietnam. Now, I, I personally, uh, one of the reasons I've become so interested in doing a Military Monday segment each each week is... Uh, specifically the Vietnam veterans who came home with no fanfare. In fact, not just no fanfare, many of you veterans came home to ridicule and scorn, and you were just doing a job. Uh, you said you mentioned that oath you took, and I feel to this day, I, I, I work downtown Salt Lake, and I see so many homeless veterans that still proudly support that Vietnam veteran cap. And I, I wonder, what can we do as a society to better buoy up the, the service men and women, not just of Vietnam era, but of current era, too, and the families that help them serve? That's a darn good question. Uh, last May, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at the Kaysville Memorial Day celebration, and they hold it in the cemetery. And it was a really good turnout, and I had a chance to talk a little bit about that. Uh, it wasn't just the way we were treated when we got home, which was lousy, but they wouldn't let us win the war. We could have won that war in a couple of months if they just turned us loose. But targets over North Vietnam, Hanoi especially, we'd fly over railroad yards packed with trains, with war supplies that were going south to attack our army and and marine corps guys and we couldn't touch them why is that like why, that. why why couldn't you bomb them because nobody could hit a target unless it was approved from washington johnson and mcnamara those two buffoons and so we're up there hitting the same old railroad bridges and the same old uh, road cuts and bridges, just stuff like that you know and Losing guys. I went over with 50 guys, and 25 of them got shot down. It was pretty sporty up there. Mm. So, sounds like you had you had the, 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 the military arms to take care of things, but instead they had you just swatting flies. Is that a good analogy? Exactly. Just turn us loose, and we, we could have shut that place down. In fact, when Johnson started the bombing halt over North Vietnam, the the Vietnamese military commander, like the Joint Chiefs of Staff leader for all of the North Vietnamese Armed Forces, said in his book, quote, We still don't understand why you stopped bombing around Hanoi area. You had us on the ropes another day or two. We were ready to surrender. 
and that every time I go to the Vietnamese wall in Washington, D.C., and now Leighton's got one, it just breaks my heart when I see the names of my dear friends that are dead because of that, those jerks with their rules and stuff. Sitting behind a desk somewhere while you guys are flying above, uh, flying into danger. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, how yeah. does that translate? How how do those same type of problems translate to our everyday life here in this country? Because it's it's easy to point to uh, as a, as someone like me, just an everyday citizen, to point to war as this marking point in history. But I'm of the belief that there's things that we can do in our everyday community. That would make an even bigger difference than uh, sending people off to war. What are some of those things that you, if you agree with that, what are some things you think we could do? Boy, that's a that's such a broad subject, you know. People are upset that we're involved in the Middle East still. But you know what? you got to go wherever the threat is, and that's where the threat is right now. And our guys are still strapping on those F-35s at hell, and they're ready to go whenever the government sends them and the same thing with our marines and the navy just recently in the last week or two uh, president trump has allowed the navy to start blowing the iranian gunboats out of the water if they started harassing ships and of course as soon as he said that they quit harassing ships Mm. Uh, it's just you know the threat is there and we got to deal with it the people in this country have to uh, understand that uh, we have to defend ourselves and we have to be ready to take on anybody that wants to destroy freedom. And that That's what I was going to follow up with. Uh, we we need to defend this country. Do you feel that this country has an obligation or a, or a calling to defend uh, anybody that is being threatened, uh, their freedoms are being threatened? Depends on who anybody is. There are some countries that can defend themselves and we don't support them. But let's just look at a country like Norway. It's one of the richest countries in the world, highest standard of living. They have no military. They couldn't defend themselves if the Swedes, for example, decided to invade them. Hmm. And what do you do then? Just sit back and watch them do that? Or if they ask for our help, do we not provide it? Those are, you know, those are deep issues. And uh, all I can tell you is as long as I had the uniform on, Wherever the government wanted to send me, I was ready to go. I spent a lot of time away from my family, twice an entire year for my wife and kids. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, three or four months I was involved in that. And, uh, you know, it's a price that has to be paid, but we got to remember our families, too, our wives and kids who are willing to see their dads and fathers head off and be gone and go in harm's way. I'm glad you point that out because whenever I'm at a public place and they ask for a, a veteran or, or military personnel to stand and be recognized, I wish they would ask the families to stand with them as Me well too. because I, I'm sure you would agree your wife Donna served right alongside you even though she wasn't in the plane with you. She was serving just like you were. Well, she had five kids at the time. She had to deal with everything, the lawnmower that wouldn't start, the car that had problems, uh, the kids were getting them registered in school, go to their classes, make sure the homework's done, all the cooking, all the washing. And not only am I gone for a year, but she had to watch out for the for the uh, telegram guy to see if he's mm. knocking on her door telling her I was dead or not coming back. So mm. we owe those ladies a big round of applause. 
Finally, uh, Larry, I, I wonder if, if someone out there is listening and is considering uh, to enlisting, what would be your advice to someone who would be considering to serve our country? Uh, I'd say if you feel the, uh, the desire to serve and defend your country, I'd say do it. There's so many programs in the military, all branches, where they can get trained for a great civilian career when they get out as well. I mean, I attended, I stayed for 20 years, you know. But uh, if I could go back tomorrow, even at my age, I'd do it. It's incredible. Uh, a, a party message for those like me who didn't serve and are unlikely to serve given our age. Uh, what what can we do? How can we best honor our military, even though we aren't uh, lined up right next to them on the battle lines? Speak out when you hear somebody bad mouthing our men in uniform, men and women in uniform. Uh, speak out. Uh, tell them what's you know what you feel, and tell them we ought to be grateful that we have people that are willing to put the uniform on and risk it all. Mm. Uh, write letters to the editor and speak out that way. Uh, get on a pod show like yours and speak out. You know, make yourself known. Let your let people know how you feel so they can rethink their positions. Well, Larry, I, I've been told it's okay to say thank you for your service, but more importantly, we need to say we'll never forget the service, the sacrifice, and the, the hours that you, your wife, your kids, and everyone else in the military donated and continues to donate to our country and the great cause of freedom around the world. Uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for serving and for continuing to serve by talking about your experiences. I thank you. You're very welcome. My thanks goes to Larry Steed, his uh, wife Donna, dearly departed, and uh, his family, his kids, their kids, and, and everyone in our uniformed uh, military in this country and around the world. It's important to hear Larry's words and, and take them to heart and uh, follow them. It, you can't, you may not be able to uh, sign up today to go be a fighter pilot, but you can, as he said, speak out in support of uh, our military. And I know people in the military that don't necessarily support the current president but what they do support is the office of the president and the office that uh, the 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 calling that comes with being in the military they took that oath like larry said and, the, and when you take an oath you cannot sway from that oath regardless of who's in in power who's in office uh and uh as long as you continue to live up to your oath here's what i keep reminding myself presidents come and go but this country's got to last forever and that's a thanks to our great men and women and their families in our military. Thank you again to uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Larry Steed for a few moments. Uh, I'd encourage you to go visit the Vietnam War Memorial there in the Leighton Commons Park. It's on the far north end of Leighton Commons Park. And uh, there's a lot of uh, ways to pay tribute and meditate and pay honor along that wall. All right, that's going to do it for a Military Monday edition of the EP Podcast. Thank you so much, so much for tuning in. Please, if you know someone who uh, is in the military or uh, has something to do with the military, please let me know about them at Austin Horton on Twitter, or better yet, send me an email, austin.horton at 1280thezone.com. Would love to spotlight them and give them a few minutes to talk about their passions, their, their, their oath that they've taken, and uh, give them their just due and educate each and every one of us here on the show. All right, that's it. Talk to you on a Top 10 Tuesday here on the EP Podcast. Until then, as always, be good to each other.
time now for the laugh of the day. <laughs> I was in Office Depot, right? There's a clearance table up by the front of the store. They're trying to get rid of everything, right? Trying to get rid of all this stuff. There's a sign on the table that says, everything on table, $1. So I'm thinking, well, that's a good deal. <laughs> so I take everything. <laughs> I put it in my basket. And I get out my dollar. Push it up in the register. But she starts ringing things up, $1, $2, $3. Whoa, 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 no. It's all $1 total. I point over to the sign. She says, that means each item is $1. I said, that's not what it says. She says, you're the first person to misunderstand the sign. I said, I'm the first person to understand the sign. She says, she says you want me to call the manager? Yes, absolutely, call the manager. So she says, and I'm standing there waiting for him, and here he comes down the aisle, and I can, you know, sometimes you can look at somebody, and just by looking at them, you can tell they're going to be a problem. <laughs> you can tell this guy was going to be a sh problem. Sure enough, he wouldn't sell me 82 items for a dollar. I said, I want to talk to your boss. I want to talk to the district manager. He said, he said, what's your name? He said, come with me. What's your name? I said, why does everybody want to know my name all the time? Wasting my time with that guy, Mr. Attitude Man. <laughs> I went over to Denny's because I was hungry and they had a big sign up that said, four meals for under $4. <laughs> They're liars too, they all lie. They're all in cahoots. Office Depot, Denny's, one meal, that's all they wanted to give me. Try to eat all right, better I mean, but it's, all, it's hard on the road. Some, you know, they eat the fast food, McDonald's, Burger King, these places. You know, sometimes you go to McDonald's or Burger King, sometimes the people who work there, they're sharp, you know, they're sharp and they're on the ball, you know, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, other times you gotta wonder, you gotta wonder what that hiring interview was like, you know. Please, come in, sit down. Can you mumble? Can you mumble? Can you mumble without making eye contact? Would you be willing to goof around with your coworkers while the customer grows impatient? Great, I think you'd be a good candidate for a management training program. <laughs> We're gonna have you watch an eight minute training video, then we'll put you on the front counter. The training video, it'll show you how to jam so many napkins into a dispenser that the people wouldn't be able to get one out of the stick of dynamite. <laughs> people get their own drinks now. People get their own drinks, you just gotta hand them a cup. When you hand them a cup, when you hand them a cup, make sure your fingers are sticking down inside the cup. <laughs> that's, our, that's our policy. Then you give them a bag of food and you're all done. There's no need to say, thank you, because you wrote that on the trash box. <laughs> yeah, it's, we carved it into the trash box. They'll see that when they clean up after themselves. <laughs> we do have a set greeting, though. The greeting is scripted. You can't say hello your own way. You gotta say it just like this. Welcome to Burger King, family. Take your order. <laughs> Why don't you try it? You try it, young man. Okay, sir. Welcome to Burger King. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, not quite, but you'll get it. You know, if I go to Burger King, if I get an order of onion rings, there's always a couple of french fries mixed in there with them. Always, but if I get the french fries, there's never any onion rings mixed in there. Are they in the same pile or aren't they? I'm mystified by that.